0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. It really is an honor, and not only because it's a house that belongs to the Lord, but my dear brother and becomes dear every day to me so I love you and pray for you every day and God sustains you and our God is great yes and I want to thank you on from Folsom Bible people I want to thank you those who are know of us and pray for us and support us and we're very grateful we're two years old coming up in January as uh, far as meeting on Sundays And so, we probably have 35 people that are faithful, and uh, I'm grateful for them because I've been in the other places around Folsom. They have a 1,000 people there, but I don't know that they know Jesus, right? The 35 people with us know Jesus, right? And they're committed to proclaim his name, and I'm very grateful for them. Half of them are Ruskies, right? And uh, I just love, that's Russians, <laughs> And they don't mind me calling them that. And I always ask them, are you offended when I say that? Oh, no, we love it. We know that you love us. Okay, cool. <laughs> right. so just so that's clear. Um, <laughs> they're intense people, but they have just as much love and affection as they do intensity. And I'm just on the receiving end of their grace. And so I'm very grateful for whom God has brought. And he keeps bringing young people who have a who are been saved less than a year and they just have a fire for the lord and and so that's i just take that as a breadcrumb from god that he loves me (laughs) right um we uh far as a prayer request uh, real quick and this sounds self-serving and i trust that it's not but it could be and you can talk to me afterwards but Where I live personally is not conducive really for ministry. I live in the El Dorado Hills and I live off somewheres and it's a smaller place and that's all fine and we have people over and all that, but it doesn't really enhance the ministry. We're called Folsom Bible Church for a reason, you know? And so I'm asking the Lord and have and I'll ask you, I want the Lord to give me, because I can't afford it, I want him to give me a house in the middle of Folsom, where he thinks it would be conducive to the gospel. And it's not for me, because I just need it. I just don't want it to leak, right? Because <laughs> then it gets my books wet. I don't like that, right? So I, I throw that out there, that if it, you can't sleep at night and God puts you on your me on your heart, pray for that, would you? Because I want to minister in the location, and I want it to... Uh, I want my house to be filled with those people in need, man, you know. Um, second to that is we're still looking for a facility, and it might go hand in hand with what I just asked you. I'm not sure yet, but we're looking for a facility where we can do ministry the way we want to. Right now, we, we share a building with a very gracious church, and we meet at 2 p.m. It's that's, that's kind of an odd time of day. But we'd like to have a facility to ourselves and start in the morning and go all day and maybe through the night into Monday. I don't know. Right? Depends how Pentecostal we feel. Just kidding. Is um. <laughs> Paul is Pentecostal? Is Paul? Don't give me any slack here. Right? Um. That'll probably do. Can we pray a minute, please? Um. Just because you're friends of mine. Yesterday was the second anniversary of my son um, dying. And I mean, I deal with it every day, but it's just a fresh thing, you know. And so, can we pray just a minute? Because I don't want to interfere with what I believe God will have for you. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace. You do eclipse all other competing glories. And you are supreme. And I ask that you renew that in each of our hearts today. That we are not distracted by competing glories, but that your glory would reign supreme. So bless the preaching of the word, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my... uh, My book is Philippians, Philippians 3. If you could turn there, just for now, Philippians 3. Great text. When I was first saved, this is the first book I read as a Christian. And the first verses I memorized as a Christian was verses seven and eight of chapter three. So these are very dear to me personally. But the thought that we're gonna go with today As uh, Pastor Tony had mentioned, we were at a conference and we titled this, uh, Beholding the Glories of Christ, The Soul's Singular Pursuit, The Glory That Eclipses All Others. And so we want to behold afresh the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to be taken up again. For us who have walked with him for some time, we need fresh glimpses, don't we? We, we? That's why the Lord's table is as often as it is, because our minds lose track. As sad as that is, I need refreshment of the glory of Christ. And so I hope today that's what happens here. So, the glories of Christ, this statement here, I hope it ends... This is what I want to accomplish. The glories of Christ compel us to a passionate pursuit of Christ to the very end. To the very end of my life, whether that's today or many tomorrows. I, the glories of Christ compel us to a passionate pursuit of Christ to the very end. Now, that to faithfully follow Him through this evil world, through the many trials and tribulations and sufferings that have and will most certainly come upon us, to encourage us not to defect into spiritual complacency in those trials and indifference, which is often the temptation we experience from weariness. When you're constantly under the weight of a trial, tribulation, or maybe sorrow upon sorrow, the weight of that brings upon us a weariness and this weariness which comes when we live for ourselves and not for christ we live in our own strength we stop praying because we're focused too much on our suffering we stop caring for the loss we stop battling our sin daily we stop our sacrificial service we become Really proud, you'd be surprised, but it's, it's pride, right? Self-serving, I become so introspective, and that's pride. We become unloving, uncaring, unwilling, unwilling to suffer any discomfort. We complain. We will avoid suffering at all costs. Smugly satisfied with our level of spiritual maturity, And all this happens because we've set Christ aside. We're not taken up with his glory in those cases. We've allowed the the distractions which suffering brings to remove him from the apex of my soul. We live a religious life. We become like, uh, I think it was Horton's book, Christless Christianity. Christianity. That's frightening. You know it's possible for us to get there? For the preacher to get there? Think of the letters to the churches in Revelation. Ephesus left its first love. Laodicea is called a church. There's converted people in there somewhere. Because he says those whom I reprove and discipline are the ones whom I love fascinating and he tells him i'm going to spit you out unless you repent well i don't want to be really spit out right so it's possible the correction to all that i've just said there is to behold afresh if you will the glories of christ he is his own best attraction his glory eclipses all others the motivation to live for christ is christ himself Whom whom have I have in heaven but you? And on this earth I desire nothing besides you. This is the Apostle Paul's testimony. And this brings us to our text in Philippians 3, where we say the glories of Christ compel us to a passionate pursuit of Christ to the very end little background to Philippians, I know you're well aware of, but I remind you that Paul has been in chains at least three years and maybe as many as up to five years at the point of writing this epistle from his Roman imprisonment, first imprisonment. He wrote this to a beloved people that he was very fond of. He's writing, as you know, from Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. He's under house arrest. He writes, you learn from the internal witness here of this letter, that he writes to thank them for their kindness, to call them to a life of joy in Christ, because you know how often joy and rejoicing is mentioned in this letter. He calls them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, 127 and following, and he uses the kenosis passage in, in chapter two as a pattern to follow to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is to not be thinking about me, it's to be others-oriented, regard others as more important, And he says in 2.5, have this mindset which was also in Christ. So the kenosis, the the Christ where he becomes flesh in chapter 2 is a pattern. Among other things, Paul uses that theological incredible deity becoming humanity to show the Philippians how to love one another, to be humble, to promote unity, and to cultivate unity. Is to be like Christ in humility. Wow. Wow. That, that gets me because I'm not there yet, you know. Um, so he writes to these people. In our text, then, how does it flow? Well, in verse two, he's he's got three bewares. Okay. Verse 2 of chapter 3, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Watch out for them. Heads up this paragraph that goes from 2 to 11. Why is Paul writing this? He's assisting the Philippians to protect them from the errors of a false gospel, from legalism. This is what he's protecting them from. He wants to help them stand firm in the truth that they heard from Paul, the gospel of free grace. And he reminds them, how does he do it in our text here? He reminds, him of the, he reminds them of his personal testimony of conversion. And he uses that as a template to protect us and to guard us, which is fascinating. It's just fascinating to me. He reminds them of his past pursuits in verses four through six, that which he used to glory in, and he follows with his present pursuit in seven through 11, which which he now glories in. Paul says, my life used to be taken up with self-promotion, that's that's four through six, but now it's taken up with Christ's promotion. It's worth noting here, please get this, that Paul does not put himself forward as some super saint, a life untouchable that you and I cannot achieve, as though what he is describing in our passage here about himself is unique to him alone. But he can be the example because he actually is an example for all believers because his conversion at the core is an example of all conversions. You get that? We're not all on the Damascus Road. It's not all as dramatic. All our conversions are not as dramatic as Paul. But they are every bit as supernatural and gracious. Right? Because you were once dead. And he made you alive. That's pretty dramatic. (laughs) Right? Call me crazy, but that's pretty dramatic. Right? So Paul can be a template for you and I. And he puts himself forward to say, Philippians, remember me? These legalists are coming with their nonsense, their super-duper religious life as though you should follow them, but remember me. Remember my conversion. And he uses that to, to expose the error of legalism. Can we read from 2 to 11 here to put this in our mind? Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, verse 2. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And there, here's his confidence in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But, huge contrast, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death finally in 11 in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead." Wow, a lot there in short time, so I gotta whip and spur and get after it. Verse two, right? Notice again, we mentioned verse two, three times it's repeated, beware, 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 beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Those are present tense verbs, so it's a continual action. He wants them to be on the alert. He wants them hyper alert. There's danger around. The only reason you be aware of something is that you don't want to step in it, right? You don't want to fall down. You want to be, want to be careful. He wants them to be aware so that they can avoid these people. He calls them dogs. The people of verse 2 are Jewish legalists because he calls them false circumcision. Right, so these, and you learn from Paul's other epistles, like Galatians and Ephesians, that Judaizers came after his missionary work and assaulted these new churches with Jewish legalism, and they're basically saying that faith in Christ is good, it's just not good enough. But if you add Moses and the works of the law that will tell you what you should do, now you can have assurance that you're right before God. So, so Christ is really not enough that's why he says beware of them and he calls them dogs well to the jew the dogs that's an unclean animal and dogs there's herds of dogs you read accounts historical accounts of the of the area and even my son when he was in in the war in iraq he says in these middle east cities there's packs of wild dogs running around and so the gentiles were called dogs by the highfalutin jews It was a term of derision. Paul says, look out for the dogs. These are the dogs. The legalists are the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Isn't that fascinating? Legalists are not righteous people. They're evildoers. Fascinating. Because they're void of grace. They have no grace. And so he says, beware of them. And he calls them the false circumcision in two. They're not true. They're not of God. Even though they're Jewish and Judaizers and they're promoting Moses, they have the old covenant. I thought it came from God. It did. They're just not of God. They're like what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, you're of your father, the devil. And they're Jewish. Right? They're Jewish. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's Jewish. (laughs) Right? Look at verse 3. For we are, in contrast, now he speaks of the true believer. We are the true circumcision, my says. True circumcision. Circumcision was uh, in the Old Covenant, right? A sign of the covenant. It's a sign that you are um, of the people of God in the Old Covenant. That's what was given to him for. Paul is saying in verse 3, we are the true. The true Jews, if you will. And notice what he says. In verse three, what's true about us, what is characteristic of us is that we worship in the spirit of God. We don't try to do works of the flesh and works of the law, but we worship in the spirit of God. And then this characteristic in the end of verse three is gonna carry this along for the rest of our passage here. And at the end of verse three, notice a true believer puts no confidence in the flesh for salvation. For justification, You see, the legalists did. If legalism, if Jewish legalism, if any legalism is the means of justification, then the Apostle Paul was the poster child of how to get to heaven. But he uses his former life to show it's not the way. He goes on at the end of verse three again, put no confidence in the flesh, don't be boasting in yourself. Verse four, he uses himself now and says, now he gets into his personal testimony in verse four and following. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else should have a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He used to put confidence in the flesh, he used to trust in himself, he used to see himself as righteous, and he goes on and gives the list here, as you're very well aware of, and we'll just blast through, five and six, these are the things that he put confidence in that he was right before God. In other words, this is what made him think God's awful glad to have him, right? Instead of Paul applauding God, in Paul's mind, God was applauding Paul, right? Look at him, man, circumcised on the eighth day. I'd ask Paul this, how much did you have to do with that? (laughs) Nada, (laughs) right? So it's interesting that the boasting of his flesh, the first four here, he had nothing to do with, right? Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Hebrew of Hebrews. In his home, they, they, were, they were Hebrew. They practiced he, the Judaism. They spoke it. They lived it, right? So those first four and verse five, those, those first characteristics that he put confidence in was his Jewishness and his particular Jewishness of a, of a Hebrew family that lived according to the Hebrew law, an old covenant. All right. But then he gets on at the end of verse five. Now, this is what he then used his privileges for in his personal life, he amps it up and says, as to law of Pharisee, as you know, the Pharisees were very, very strict, very, very um, religious, and they even, they were so religious that they added laws to Moses. Moses, you did pretty good, but we're going to add a few more, like 613 of them, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> And so that's what he says. I'm a a Pharisee. At the time of the writing here, I've read, I think there's like 6,000 Pharisees in all of Israel. Sounds like a lot, but compared to however many millions of people live there, it's a pretty thin slice. And these are pretty, uh, these are like uh, uh, airborne rangers, you know. These are the special warriors of the Judaism. He goes on to say in 6... Not only was I a Pharisee and took that serious, but verse 6, he says, I was zealous. Zeal was a, and if you read in the Old Covenant, right, was an expression of how much faith you had in Yahweh. Elijah was zealous, right? Phinehas was zealous and stuck a peg in his head, right? Jesus says, zeal for my house consumes me. Right? So, zeal is a, is a characteristic in the Old Covenant that was a, a commendable. It showed your faith, it showed your passion. Paul says, I was so passionate beyond anybody, other Pharisee, notice that I hunted the church. Persecutor. That was the sign of his zeal. No one could match Paul in zeal. Nobody. He was famous for his zeal because he hunted the church. He went and killed Christians to show how much he believed in Judaism. Fascinating. So that tells you right, he hated Christians because he hated Christ. He he if Christ was there he would have gone after him. But he went after those who belonged to him. The apostle Paul was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. And he hunted believers and hated them and hated Christ. Verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law, according to their standard, found blameless. He was careful to do all that he thought he should do. All these outward things. And think about it. How strong did he believe these things? Was zeal caused him to hate Christians and hunt them down. And he was he, he, this was how his mindset, he woke up in this way, he lived the day this way and he went to bed this way. This, 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 this tainted his glasses and how he saw all of life. He was so confident in his personal works that he was assured that he was right for, with, before God. He had no problem that, he had no doubt that he was going to be in the kingdom, that he was in the kingdom because of his efforts, because of his, his works, and that's what he put his confidence in. He was persuaded by his own efforts that he will be in the kingdom. Hmm. Jesus said this, remember Luke, listen to this in Luke 18. Christ told this parable that to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's, a, that's what legalism does for you, right? Have you ever been in legalistic congregations? Run for your life, right? Vamos muy rápido, ándale. Right? That's close. Yeah. Close, yeah. Get out. I would put it like this. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Dodge Because that's why Paul says in 2 Beware Beware of legalism Beware of legalists Legalists do not lead you to godliness They lead you backwards They do not help you grow in spiritual maturity They keep you spiritual infants Because legalism is a work of the flesh It's not the work of the Spirit. It's not of faith, says Paul. Law is not of faith. Therefore, it's not of grace. It's of the flesh. It doesn't take faith to keep outward rules. It's a work of my flesh, my fallen flesh. So Paul says, I trusted in myself. If anybody was getting to heaven on his merits, it was Paul. That was in his mind. But something radical happened. As you know in verse 7. Radical happened. Look at what it says in 7. But whatever things were gained to me, these I've counted, have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's his new pursuit. Whatever things, that's verses 4, Four, five, six, whatever things. Notice what it says in seven: gain and loss. He's using, uh, um, what's the help me the terms for gain and loss? Uh, uh, accounting terms. Sorry, sorry. And they are antonyms, right? Um, two columns. He's using accounting terms to speak of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. The, the, the Acts 9 gives you the historical account of what happened that you could observe and see. This is telling you what happened inside at that moment. Verse 7, notice the tense here. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost. That's past. He's, 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 he's counted them lost, these things that were gained to him. In his ledger were verses 5 and 6. This is my gain ledger, circumcised the eighth day in all these things. And this is what he was going to hand to God and say, this is why I'm in your kingdom. And he's trusting in this ledger because it's got these things that are gain. But verse 7 says, I've counted all those things that were gain and I have flipped them over to the other side as loss for the sake of Christ. Now think about that. They went from gain to loss like that. It wasn't a process. It was a divine assault. <laughs> right? It was a divine kidnapping. right? Christ apprehended him on the road to Damascus and presented himself to him. And Paul... Immediately upon seeing who Jesus Christ is Took everything in the gain And put it in the loss It's no longer what I'm trusting in It's now detrimental It now gets in the way Of gaining Christ. Because look where he goes on from here in verse 8. This is amazing. In verse 8, he goes on to present tense. Verse 7 is past tense. I have counted. By the word, counted is a calculated term. It's a term of careful bean counters. Right? It's, It's carefully calculating. It's carefully counting. So what the verse what Paul is saying what happened in his life in his inner person on the Damascus road he carefully calculated who Jesus Christ presented himself as and compared that to what he was in he thought as a gain and carefully calculated and came to this conclusion and said this is no longer gain this is loss for the sake of Christ for the sake of Christ verse 8 he moves into the present he says in verse eight, more than that, and th- there's, that's a really interesting, there's like five or six Greek particles. It's kind of like a shovel full of Greek particles and he just kind of threw them there and however they landed, that's how he says, but whatever, um, but whatever more than that, um, he, he's, he, he's at a loss for words. He's so stunned by what he's trying to describe he says, not only at Damascus did I say, man, this is no longer gain, this is loss because of Christ. He says, more, more than that, beyond that, um, I'm trying to tell you, he says in verse eight, I count, notice, present tense. I am counting now, beyond the things of verse five and six, he says, all things, all things to be lost. Whatever it is, what does all mean? <laughs> Amen. This case, it's all. <laughs> right? Total. <laughs> it excludes nothing. Includes everything. You can put whatever you want in all in that verse. Okay, what about this? Boop. Okay, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now this, this, this present tense in verse 8 I am counting. I am carefully calculating everything in my life, and everything comes to the same conclusion. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. Now think. This radical transformation that he's describing here, this happens on the inside of a person. This this happens in the mind. That's where the calculation takes place. That's where your desire is. That's where your value system is, isn't it? It's in your mind, how you think of things, how you see things, how you value something. This change takes place in the mind as to what is valuable. It takes something very dramatic, doesn't it? to change one's perspective on something, even in an earthly sense. How radical, how, I guess what's being described here for us in verse 7 and 8, is here's a man who was pretty confident in his personal religious efforts and achievements that he is going to the kingdom, he's in the kingdom. And that quick, something so dramatic, so radical, Happened to him that his value system was turned upside down immediately. That's what happens to every single conversion. Every single conversion, whether they're six years old or 106 years old, whatever their value system was or is at that time, Christ comes and radically changes it. Because what was gained now is in the loss. Because who's in the gain is Christ. And that's what it means to be converted. This is why he is the example for all of us. When you came to Christ, you made a calculated decision. He's worth everything. You saw him as in Matthew 13, man. There was a pearl there in the field. And you saw that pearl of great price is worth everything. And so what did you do? You sold everything so that you could get the pearl. You saw him as the greatest treasure. There was nothing of more value Therefore you gave up everything to have that which you now think is the greatest value. That's what Paul is saying. The greatest value to him used to be 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6. But since Christ came into his life, revealed who he is, it radically changed. That's why he, his glory, eclipses all other glory. No other glory can compete with Jesus Christ. For instance, I got up early 30 to come here, right? And over the Sierras, I don't, I'm not an astronomer, so I don't know what it is. I know it's a planet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this round light about this big, and it's just bright every morning right up there above the Sierras. Well, about 730, it's gone. Did it, vamos, where did it go? No, it's still there. It's just the greater glory of a greater sun came up and eclipsed that star's glory, amen? That's what Jesus Christ does in your life. You've come to the calculation that he is a greater glory and therefore he eclipses all of the competing glories you once saw as glorious and you've pushed them aside and now not only are they not quite as valuable as Jesus, they are in a negative. They are no good at all. Scubalai ain't good for nothing but growing roses. <laughs> right? We'll get there. Um, so then in verse 8, I count all things to be lost and view the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you see there in the middle, what is it that changed his perspective? Is knowing Christ Jesus. Now, knowing here is not knowing about him. It's not knowing details and facts. Of course, that is included because you've got to know who we're talking about. But what this is emphasizing by using the term that it uses is that the knowledge here speaks of the knowledge that a husband has of his wife, of, a, of the knowledge that you have of another person who's dear to you. It is intimate, personal, experiential. It is to know Jesus Christ. Is that not the testimony of every single born-again person? That you have an intimate, personal, experiential knowledge with the living God, with the Son of the living God? He is a living person who lives inside you. Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives, present tense, in me. He is a living person. How do you not experience a living person? You do. You do. This is what Paul is saying. Legalism has no personal experience with God. It's just you with you and you love it that way. That's your problem. right? But God comes and rescues you out of legalism by showing himself to you. And he comes and Converts you and indwells you and you have this intimate personal walking knowledge with the living God How do you explain? Immediately saying I count all things loss That I might have him. How do you explain that you cannot explain that other than supernatural work of grace? Where God comes and says here. I am have a taste you go. Oh, that is good I have tasted, well, Psalm 34, I have tasted and found him to be good. Well, taste is an experiential verb. It's a, it's a, it tastes this. Experience my soup, brother, right? Oh, man, that guy can't cook. He says, leave me alone. No, but Jesus is tasty, man. He is it. <laughs> this is what Paul is saying here. And notice, he's using his personal testimony of conversion to combat, expose, and protect from legalism. Now, I have to say, and I'm going to finish where, whenever I finish, brother, on your, I won't make it where I want to be. But I think I'm feeling compelled to say this, because why is legalism such a big deal? Because every single one of us is a legalist by nature. Every single one of us has a tendency to, to have a little box. I feel pretty good about myself. I read my Bible today, <laughs> right? And just check yourself. How do you feel when you don't read your Bible today? God now hates you, you dirty, rotten sinner, <laughs> right? You can check your heart. I didn't pray for 15 minutes today. I didn't pray for three hours today, whatever, however pious you are, right? How do you see yourself when you don't reach the level that you have for yourself? That'll tell you about your heart. Are you a legalist? Are you you prone to being legalistic? Let's put it that way, right? True believers are always going in and out of legalistic tendencies. That's why these things are written for us. To show us, and to keep us from that. Because legalism kills. Legalism destroys churches. It produces animalistic behavior. It does. Biting and devouring, says Galatians, until we eat each other. That's crazy. But grace makes us more like Jesus. Legalism don't make you like Jesus. If anything, it makes you like Moses, and who wants to be like Moses? (laughs) I mean, he's a good dude, but he ain't Jesus, right? Come on, somebody, Where's the Baptist around here? Any Baptist back there? (laughs) Am I speaking foreign language? Are we okay? We're there. All right. I really believe this is what Paul is doing here. He's, he's putting himself forward in his conversion to com- combat legalism. This is true conversion. I once thought this was gain, but Christ invaded my life and now I threw all that overboard. It's like having a bucket full of gold and the ship is sinking. What are you gonna do with the gold? Tie it around your neck and try to swim to shore? Or throw it overboard and grab hold of this circle thing. what <laughs> it's called. Can't remember. You know what I mean? Gold has a value to a point until it's detrimental. Everything, according to verse 8, is detrimental to apprehending and knowing Christ more intimately, personally. Amen. Amen. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value, the hyper value of knowing, personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of Christ Jesus, and he calls him my Lord. I love that little word. It just immediately wants me to ask y'all, Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? As in my personal Lord. He says in continuing, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, continue, but rubbish, scuba lawn, excrement, manure, I read uh, it was used in extra-biblical Greek writings about corpses that were half-eaten. So it's a graphic term, and what it shows is the derision, the hatred that Paul now has for legalism and anything that competes with Christ. Right? I mean, what do you think about it? If if scuba on his manure we'll just stay there there's a lot of ladies here how much are you going to sacrifice to have your own personal bucket full of manure probably not a lot i hope right but that's exactly what you're doing when you see the things of the world is more valuable than knowing jesus christ you're living somewhat insanely, <laughs> frankly. And, and isn't that a form of unbelief? To see manure, on is more valuable than Jesus. Isn't that a little bit of unbelief? And every sin that I can commit as a believer, at the moment I commit this, by the way, to not treasure Jesus Christ is sin. That's worth noting. Every sin I commit is an act of unbelief because I'm choosing not to believe what I know about Jesus Christ at that moment to then choose sin. Amen? Because 1 John 1, 9, talking to believers, says to confess that and God is righteous and just to cleanse and to forgive you. Well, what are you doing when you confess that? Is you're coming back to confess Jesus as Lord? You're coming back to confess that what I just did is sin, and I thank you for your sacrifice on my behalf. You see, our faith is brought back online, and so Paul is saying here, in in coming to conversion and now life after conversion, because verse eight is life. After conversion. As a believer, he's in verse 8. Verse 7 is the Damascus road past. Verse 8 is present tense. 30 years after his conversion, he writes verse 8. My life as a Christian is taken up with the pursuit of Jesus Christ. You're still still pursuing this young lady, right? And you know her more today than you did 30 years ago. My wife had been married 42 years. I was married when I was six. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My wife always gets mad when I say that. (laughs) Um, And as you walk through life together, highs and lows and sufferings and trials and happies and stuff, tell you the last couple years I've learned a lot about my wife and I'm stunned that she's with me (laughs) really man but that's what it is walking with Christ you know more today than you did yesterday and if we've tasted of him and get this the only ones who pursue Christ are the ones who have already tasted of him dead people don't pursue anything Spiritually dead people do not pursue Christ. He pursues them, awakens them, gives them a little taste, and they say, okay, now my life's taken up with pursuing this. This is verse eight. That I may gain Christ at the end of verse eight. He wants his whole life to be putting Christ in, in the gain column and everything else in the loss. He wants to grow in his understanding and knowledge of Christ. He wants, to, he wants nothing to get in the way. He wants nothing to interfere with his pursuit because he has been convinced that there's nothing that compares to Jesus Christ. Isn't that where we're at as believers? I mean, in our can't we say that there is nothing that you could offer me, that I could offer you that would make you jettison your relationship with Jesus Christ? There's nothing, or you're not converted. Because a, a, a converted person would not abandon Jesus Christ because you have tasted and been satisfied in the soul. John 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He's the living water. What does living bread and living water do to the soul that consumes him but satisfies? It's Psalm 63, like the fat of morrow. He, is my f- he, he, he satisfies me like the fat of, 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 of the best cut of the meat. He's the all-satisfying one. And you walk with him and you know him and you live with him and you've tasted of him and you continue to experience him, continue to walk with him. And he takes you through the highs and through the lows. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, good luck to you. No, he says, I will never leave you, right? I am with you. You don't have to be afraid. I am with you. Is that how you see Christ? He is worth everything. There is nothing that competes. All things counted loss. All financial gain. All material gain. All physical gain. All intellectual gain. All moral gain. All religious gain. All these are no gains at all compared to the greatest gain, which at the end of eight is Christ. how great must Jesus be for us to be told anyone who loves mama and papa more than me is not worthy of me did Jesus say that Jesus says take up your cross and follow me How, how great must he be that he didn't blush when he said that. He wasn't, you know, kind of ashamed to say that. He boldly said that. If you want to be a disciple of mine, you take up your cross and follow me. He's to have supreme position because he is the greatest treasure. Listen to this that I came across somewhere, and it just thrills me to read this to you about the glory of Christ that once we experience this person of Christ, so pure is he that there's no blemish, there's no stain or spot of sin in him, no defilement, there's no lying, there's no deception, there's no corruption, there's no error or imperfection in Jesus. Is he worth pursuing? Well, so complete is he that there's no other God besides him, he's the only begotten son, All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Him. He is the heir of all things. He created all things, and all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him. He upholds all things by the word of His power... He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact representation of God. He is the only mediator between God and man. He's the sun that enlightens, the physician that heals. He's the wall of fire that defends. He's the friend that comforts, the pearl that enriches, the ark that supports, the rock to sustain under the heaviest of pressures. He is the living water and living bread that satisfies. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He is better than angels, you bet. He's better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than Melchizedek, better than all the prophets, greater than Satan, and stronger than death. Amen. Amen. He, is, he has no beginning or no end. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our life. He is the living and true way. He's the strength of Israel. He is the root and offspring of David. He is the bright and morning star. He is faithful and true. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the captain of our salvation. He is the champion. He's the elect one. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the righteous servant of God. He is the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. He is the man of sorrows. He is the light. He's the son of man. He is the vine. He is the bread of life. He is the door. He's the Lord. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He is the Sabbath rest. He is our righteousness. He is the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Good and Chief Shepherd. He is Lord God of hosts. He is Lord of the nations. He is the Line of the tribe of Judah. He's the Living Word, the Rock of Salvation, Eternal Spirit. He's the Ancient of Days, Creator and Comforter, Messiah. He is the Great I Am. Amen. This is my Jesus. This is my Lord, for whom we have counted loss all things that we might know Him that we might gain Him, that we might be found in Him. Our righteousness is in Him. He is our satisfier. He is our soul's strength. He he has eclipsed all other glories that compete, and He is our soul's number one pursuit. I commend Him to you again. I wish I could have got farther, but I need to stop there. But I trust that God will use it anyway. Right? This Jesus... If you're not in him, he's calling sinners to himself. If you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, if you've never repented, if you've never called on him in faith, if if you're not sure of where your eternal salvation will be, I commend to you this Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and three days later was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God the Father, or orchestrating, sustaining all of the universe, awaiting for the Father to say to return. Eventually, he will make all wrongs right. All evil will be dispelled and done away with, and righteousness will reign forever and ever in a new kingdom. And those who will populate that new kingdom are the ones that said yes to Jesus. Have you said yes to Jesus? Come to him. He will never let you down. He will walk with you everywhere. He'll never leave you, nor forsake you. If you've been a believer a long time and you're kind of down and out, overcome with whatever, I understand. But so does Jesus. Pray that he be put back where he belongs. On the throne of your heart is the Lord of glory and the all-satisfying Savior. Pray. Pray. Father, thank you for your word.